Hello there. Let's get you oriented. If you're facing two open green doors with two stone walls in view, you're in the right place. So, welcome to the Latin Quarter. This area is called the Latin Quarter because it was the birthplace of universities and educational institutes during the medieval ages, where Latin was the language of learning, not just in France, but in Europe as a whole. The neighborhood is still very much the beating heart of student life today. But as we'll explore, I'll tell you a romantic tale about a certain very gifted former student at the Latin Quarter, whose brilliant mind set the bar for scholars and intellectuals, both of his time during the medieval period and after. His name is Peter Abelard, and once you've walked this path, you're most likely going to remember his name. Speaking of names, I haven't properly introduced myself. My name is Jean-Pierre Muller. I'm an actor, director and author. About 30 years ago, I started an independent theatre company called Le Théâtre du Peuplier Noir, which is set up in the city of Colombes, just a 40-minute drive north of Paris. The voice you're hearing right now is translated, for I do not speak English, but these words are the direct translation of my story. Okay, go ahead and look above the doors. Under the half arch, you should see the inscription Arène de Lutèce, which translates to the Lutèce Arenas. What we're about to enter is a Roman arena, which dates back to the first century. Over time, it was somewhat abandoned and was rediscovered much later in 1870. And then it was finally restored in 1917. Now, take a look at the two plaques to the right, one green, one brown. They both explain the history of the construction of the Lutus Arenas. I'll tell you all about it while we walk. Let's get going. Go ahead and enter through the green doors. Further ahead, there should be stone steps. Take the steps down so that you're inside the amphitheater. And then, as soon as you exit the stairs, look up ahead to your right, you should see an alley walkway. Head towards that alley walkway and I'll meet you there. Now, a little up ahead, within the walkway, again to your right, you should see stairs. Walk up those stairs, so you are standing on the right side of the amphitheater. You can now stand or sit on the first level of the bleachers. From there, you'll have a view of the entire arena while you listen to the story of this rather magical spot. The exact same spot where ancient Romans and the first Parisians would come to watch plays and shows. I say the first Parisians used to sit here, but in fact, they were called Lutetiens, because before the city was called Paris, it was known as Lutes. This was during the Gallo-Roman era, around year 200 AD. Back then, the right bank of the river Seine was mostly swampland, or marécage in French, which is why it's now called the Marais area. Where we are now, however, 
is on the left bank of the River Seine. The general outline of Paris isn't a whole lot different than it was back then, but of course, there's been a lot of construction since. It appears that in every city the Romans conquered, they built arenas just like this one to appease those they ruled. You've probably heard their motto, Panem et Circenses, which means give them bread and circuses. In other words, keep people fed and entertained, and they're easier to rule. Cities throughout the Roman Empire, whether in Spain, North Africa or England, always had to have theatres and arenas to keep people diverted and not thinking about revolt. The first element most likely to catch the eye within this arena are the bleachers you're sitting on right now. According to historical records, the original bleachers could seat between 10 to 16,000 spectators, many of them coming from the surrounding countryside just to catch a show, especially during festivities. The Lutes Arenas is a bit unique compared to others. Generally, an arena which served as a theatre would have a stage where plays were held and acrobats, mimes and musicians performed. And then, there would be a clearing for the combat of wildcats and gladiators, which were, in other words, executions. This arena, however, served both purposes. From where you're seated, turn your gaze towards the right. Can you spot the aligned green benches within little arched semicircular walls, or niches? This used to be the stage area, and they also had a very practical solution for the two usual technical problems in every theatre, lighting and sound. The stage, or the proscenium, faces west, so it got the most sun during the afternoon, which is when performances would usually take place. This was both practical and environmentally friendly, as opposed to burning wood. Acoustics were a little more complicated. Picture 10 to 12,000 people seated on these bleachers. The aristocrats would be seated on wooden chairs at the bottom of the bleachers, with awnings to protect them from the sun, and the common people would be seated further up. If you think of it like a football match, you can imagine that it would be pretty difficult for those all the way at the top to hear what a single voice on stage was saying. Well, the Romans figured that one out. In the original arena, the little niches that you see were actually built a lot higher. And so, when, say, actors came to recite their lines, they would position themselves within these niches or shout out their lines in that direction so that their voices could be echoed back out into the arena. Stage directors continued to use variations of this method for centuries. Now stand up and take the stairs down back to the center of the arena. Underneath the bleachers where you were seated, look for a green steel mesh wall. I'll meet you there. So, this is where we can assume the wild animals were detained and then released into the arena for combat. Today, what's left of this Roman amphitheater is used as a public park. The games continue still, but instead of gladiators or lions, you see children kicking around a football or friends having a round of pétanque, a traditional French ball game similar to bachelor ball. Feel free to walk around, by the way. 
So, in around year 300 AD, the arena was partly dismantled, so the stones could be recycled to build the Gallo-Roman walls around the island of La Cité, not too far from here. Towards the end of the 19th century, some Parisians wanted to clean up this area and build a parking structure. But Victor Hugo, the celebrated French novelist, argued that since this is one of the most important Gallo-Roman remains in France, it mustn't be demolished, but instead it should be restored. And so it has. Now, like I said before, I myself am involved in the modern theatre scene in Paris, but I've always wondered what it would have been like to stage a play or to act here in the arena. And I think that one of my plays would have fit in perfectly with the surroundings. It was about a famous French love story based on real-life events that took place in the 12th century. It's as famous in France as Romeo and Juliet is in England, and it all actually took place right here in the Latin Quarter. It's a tragic love story between the young and bright Eloise and our former student, Peter Abelard. Yes, that's right. I mentioned he was one of the greatest thinkers of his time. But Peter Abelard was also a hopeless romantic. You'll soon have a better idea of how hard life was back then. But you'll also come to see how complicated romance could be in medieval Paris. Come along, I'll tell you the story as we go. Let's head back to the street now. Exit the same way you entered. That's towards the white buildings and high brick walls. You're going to walk back towards the same staircase, go up the stairs, then exit through the green doors. I'll meet you there. Are you with me out on the street? Great! With your back to the green doors, turn left and start walking. The street will be on your right. So, who exactly was Peter Abelard? Well, he came from a small town in Brittany, which is a region in the northwest of France, just a few hours' train ride from Paris. His father was a soldier, but Abelard, and to his father's approval, grew up preferring the battle of intellects over war. You're approaching a crosswalk on your right. Cross it towards the bank and then walk slightly towards the left. Make sure it's safe before you cross and I'll meet you on the other side. Okay, you should be on the other side of the street. Take the beautiful staircase to the left of the bank and walk up either side. At the top, you'll see an empty mini-plaza called Place Benjamin Fondane. I'll meet you there. The plaza was named after a French poet and philosopher who once lived here before being sent off to a Nazi death camp in World War II. Walk straight and you'll reach a little cobblestone street. So, what was life like for Abelard back in medieval Paris? 
Well, for one, these cobblestones actually serve the purpose. See how they make a V-shape in the middle of the road. That was used as a gutter where Parisians threw their garbage. Not a very pretty thought, huh? Also, during the Middle Ages, Paris wasn't the best-smelling place. The city's main activities were concentrated along streets like this one and by the river. People used the gutters and the river to dispose of garbage, excrement and animal carcasses. And at the river, water carriers would scoop up the dirty water to sell to people who actually drank it. No wonder taking a bath was considered unhealthy back then. By the way, when you pass the elementary school to the right, a little further ahead at the corner, with a brown ornate door and a matching window, look up above the window. There's a carving of a boat with the inscription Fluctuat nec mergitur. That's the Paris motto. It means shaken but not sunk. Popular among Parisians in the Middle Ages, no doubt because they put up with a lot. Keep on walking. In 1185, King Philippe Auguste couldn't stand the smell anymore, so he ordered the digging of canals and trenches. It also became compulsory to shout Garalo, which means watch out for the water three times before throwing waste out the window. After the school at number 14, you'll pass by a plaque dedicated to René Descartes, who lived here in the 16th century. Just like Abelard, he was a great intellectual and a specialist in the field of logic. Once you reach the end of this street, turn left at the corner, just underneath the sign Restaurant de l'Époque. Immediately after turning left, walk towards the plaza, and at the plaza, take the crosswalk to your right towards the restaurant with the red awning. So, back to Peter Abelard. He was actually the student of another great medieval intellectual, William Champeau, who had a high-ranking teaching post at the Notre-Dame Cathedral. When Peter started teaching and gaining fame, his professor William Champeau was actually jealous of his very own student. Eventually, when Peter started putting his professor's theories into question, William Champeau started losing credibility and retired. Once you've crossed, continue walking along the Dema Bar restaurant and stop at the corner facing the fountain. So, this square with its old facades highlights the fact that the city of Paris has always made a point to preserve its heritage, the good and the bad. Its name, Place de la Contrescarpe, is interesting because a counterscarpe is a kind of architectural term to describe the exterior wall of a ditch which is used as a means of fortification or protection. Place de la Contrescarpe is actually referring to the reinforcements of the ancient battlements of Philippe Auguste, his city walls, in other words, which we'll be visiting shortly. If this place wasn't famous outside of the city, the American author Ernest Hemingway made it so by opening his famous Memoire of Paris, A Movable Feast, with a description of Place de la Contrescarpe. Here's how Hemingway saw it. When the fall was over, we would have to shut the windows in the night against the rain and the cold wind would strip the leaves from the trees in the Place Contrescarpe. The leaves lay sodden in the rain, and the wind drove the rain against the big green autobus at the terminal. 
It's very easy for writers to be inspired by Paris. I myself had fun writing Eloise and Abelard, but soon I started to realize the difficulty of the project because Abelard's life was quite complex. So I did something that, in principle, I don't really like to do in theater. Rather than remaining within the time period of the love story, I wrote a play which tells the life of Abelard from his birth to his death in order to create context. So I cover a rather long period. After that, I worked on the title. I called it La Coupe d'Amour d'Eloïse et Abelard. There is a small play on words here. La coupe meaning both the cup that we drink from, so the cup of love, and then la coupe in the sense of cutting, so love cuts. Well, time to get moving. With the plaza behind you, walk with the bar restaurant on your right. You'll be walking through Rue Mouffetard, one of the oldest streets in Paris. In fact, it follows the track of an old Roman road built in the first century. Let's go. You should now be turning right, then keep walking straight. They say Mouffetard originated from the word Moffet, which meant unbearable stench, another smelly street like the one we'd passed. Mouffetard Street has a real medieval character. It's the Paris I imagine Abelard lived in. Apart from the cobblestones, look left. See the houses slightly leaning back? This was to create a stable base. Also notice the charming facades and uneven rooftops intact and proudly displaying the weathered nuances of centuries well lived. You're approaching an intersection. Keep walking straight to cross it, and I'll meet you on the other side. You see, when Baron Haussmann was commissioned for a project to modernize the city, the street was preserved. Remember, we are now on the Saint Geneviève Hill. You should be on the other side. Keep walking straight. There's a great contrast between the old medieval Paris and the hip modern students. Peter Abelard started out as a student here, but to the envy of other scholars, he moved on to set up his own school to teach his own theories. No wonder his professor William Champeau thought Peter Abelard was arrogant. Look to your right. There's a bar La Maison de Verlaine. Okay, let's stop here for a moment. You should be in front of the wine bar, La Maison de Verlaine. Remember, I mentioned Hemingway at Place de la Contrescarpe. Well, there's a plaque explaining that he lived here from 1921 to 1925. There are also some pictures of him on the windows. Now let's keep walking and get back to Peter Abelard and that love story I promised you. So, living in Paris at the same time as Peter was a girl named Héloïse. She was well known, not simply for her beauty, but for her brilliant mind. When Abelard met her, he was smitten. In order to catch Héloïse's eye, Abelard convinced her uncle, with whom she lived, to take him in, and in return, Abelard would see to it that she further advanced in her studies. Her uncle was very protective of his niece, and he wanted to provide her with the best possible education he could afford her. In addition, Abelard thought that due to his celebrity, he had a good chance of impressing her and her uncle. So yes, I suppose it's fair to say that he lived up to his arrogant reputation. 
You should now be approaching an intersection. Turn right at the corner up ahead. You should now be turning right, then keep walking straight. Up ahead, you should see a section of an old stone wall jutting out towards the street. Stop when you get there. Back in Abelard and Eloise's day, giant walls were used as a means to protect the city from possible invaders. This was the thinking of King Philippe Auguste. Okay, keep walking and stop once you're right in front of the section of the old wall. King Philippe Auguste, also known as King Philippe II, reigned from 1180 until his death in 1223. With about 200,000 inhabitants, Paris was in the 13th century the largest medieval city in the Western world. This wall was built during the struggles between Philip II of France and the Anglo-Norman House of Plantagenet. Looking at it, you can really appreciate just how massive of a structure it is. Now would be a good time to whip out your phone and take a photo of the wall. It's pretty impressive, especially considering that it's eight centuries old. Feel free to use the Detour app to take your picture and post it to your social media. I'll wait for you. In 1190, King Philip was leaving on his third crusade. And so, as a military strategy, he ordered the construction of a wall around Paris to protect the capital during his absence. From a political standpoint, the wall also served as a border. Back in 1190, it wasn't exactly clear where the city started and ended, so the wall helped set apart the city and the countryside and undermined the feudal lords against whom his primary battle was as they tried to grab any land loose from the grips of kings. The plaque you see on the width of the wall unfortunately gives out false information. The wall of King Philip was constructed on the right bank during the 12th century and on the left bank during the 13th century. As we are now standing on the left bank, it should read 13th century and not 12th century. Today, a lot of what remains of Philippe Auguste's left bank wall has been demolished or is located within private residential areas. Okay, turn around and with the old Paris wall behind you, head back the same way you came from. This is one of the few places the wall can still be seen and why I had to bring you here today. Okay, when you reach the intersection up ahead, I want you to cross both streets when it's safe. So cross diagonally and stop at the corner, in front of the treetops behind the stone wall. I'll meet you there. Our next stop is a church very much entwined with our friend Abelard and his teaching career. Okay, now walk ahead with the trees beyond the wall on your right. Our next stop is a church very much entwined with our friend Abelard and his teaching career. Look to your left. Do you see a tower? That's called the Clovis Tower. It's in the middle of the very prestigious high school Henri IV, as in Henry IV. Remember this tower, because we'll come back to it in a minute. Okay, keep your eyes peeled for the back door to a church called Saint-Étienne-du-Mont on your right. When you get to the number 20 on the street, you should see the purple door. Stop when you get there. 
The Saint-Étienne-du-Mont Church is only the latest of a succession of churches and religious institutions that have been here for over a thousand years. You should be standing outside the purple door. So, in order to understand the history of this Saint-Étienne-du-Mont Church, you'll also need to understand the history of another church dedicated to a certain Sainte-Geneviève. So, Saint Geneviève was born in year 420 AD in Nanterre, a town in the western suburbs of Paris. But she grew up to become an admired and influential nun based in Paris, so much so that the king at the time, King Clovis, whose name this street bears, took notice and decided her memory had to be preserved. Then, shortly before her death in 512, the king built a church where she would be buried, and the church eventually took on her name, Sainte Geneviève. Okay, if the purple door is open, the church will be too. Let's go. Walk up the stairs, and then go through the white doors, then the brown ones. Don't worry, it's open to the public. Just be respectful. Inside, look for a painted glass window at the second enclave to the left. I'll meet you there. Are you in front of the glass window? If you're not sure you're in front of the right one, take a look at your phone to see a photo of it. What you're looking at is a 19th century glass window displaying two churches. The church on the left is the church where we are now, Saint-Étienne-du-Mont, and next to it on the right is the Saint-Geneviève church I just told you about outside. And do you see the bell tower of the church on the right? That's the one we saw a minute ago, the Clovis Tower, now inside the high school Henri IV. Turns out that our old friend and would-be lover Peter Abelard also had a part in developing the churches on this site. In 1110, Peter Abelard, then 32 years old, came to settle in Saint-Geneviève and began teaching there. Now, there's a great deal of material out there on Eloise and Abelard. But what interested me most was his struggles against dogmas that existed at the time which limited freedom of expression. I found that Abelard fought all his life for freedom of expression. So in my opinion, he was by extension a precursor to freedom of conscience. He was such a popular teacher, very much in demand, that there was an influx of students on the left bank on the slopes of the Saint-Geneviève Hill no doubt intrigued by his celebrity and by his philosophical theories, which were not only daring for his time, but they also put into question the theories of his fellow scholars. The Saint-Geneviève institution grew even after Abelard's death, but the small abbey church gradually fell to ruins, so a second sanctuary was built in 1492. This was the Saint-Étienne-du-Mont church where we are now, flanking the Saint-Geneviève Abbey, as demonstrated on the glass-painted window. Fast forward a few centuries to 1744, and we come across King Louis XV. At the time, he was suffering from a serious illness and vowed that if he survived, he would build a new church dedicated to Saint-Geneviève, to whom he prayed. When his health improved, he made good on his promise, the foundations were dug in 1758, and King Louis XV placed the first stone of the church just 200 meters from here. 
That was a few years before the revolution began in 1789. So in effect, the new Saint Geneviève church was destroyed by anti-church revolutionaries before it was even finished. They were so anti-church, they burned some of the remains of Saint Geneviève herself. The Saint-Étienne-du-Mont church, however, survived that period. But wait, the Saint Geneviève church, which King Louis had started building not too far from here, wasn't completely destroyed by the revolutionaries. In 1791, what remained of what was supposed to be the new Saint Geneviève church was transformed into what is today the Pantheon. You'll see it in a minute once we exit the church. The remaining buildings of the old Saint Geneviève church were converted into that famous high school Henri IV, and the bell tower is all that remains of the original Saint Geneviève church. Feel free to pause me and wander around the church while being mindful of churchgoers. The church is still very much in use. Press start when you're ready to leave the church. If you're ready to leave now, with your back to the glass-painted window we were standing at, turn left and cross the church straight and exit at the exact opposite side you entered from. You're going to walk all the way into the next section of the church. At the very end, you'll find the main entrance. Exit through there. Are you back outside with me? Great. With a church entrance to your back, look up towards the left. Do you see a large dome structure? That's the Pantheon I just mentioned earlier, transformed from what was supposed to be the new Saint Geneviève church. Today, it's used as the last resting place for some of France's most important secular and political heroes, like Rousseau and Voltaire, to name a few. Okay, let's get going. You're up for a little treat. With your back to the church, turn right and start walking. You should pass the purple entrance doors. Further ahead, you should see a set of white stone stairs at the corner to your right. If you're a Woody Allen fan, you'll get a kick out of discovering that this staircase actually appears in his movie Midnight in Paris. Let's stop here facing the steps. This famous scene features Owen Wilson waiting on the round edge steps with the steel rail visibly behind him. In the movie, Owen's character waits for a mysterious car which appears every night at the stroke of midnight. He's then magically transported through time and enjoys the company of his idols, the likes of Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein and Pablo Picasso, all of whom lived and worked around here in the 20th century. Now this is a great photo opportunity. Feel free to use the Detour app to take your photo and post it to your social media. Okay, with your back to the steps, continue walking straight down the hill. So, back to our tale. Now that Abelard managed to find a pretext to spend time with Eloise as her tutor, what do you think happened? Did Abelard manage to win over Eloise's heart? Well, the two young intellectuals fell in love at once.
they spent far more hours in each other's arms than actually studying. Abelard became less and less interested in reading or lecturing and more preoccupied with his new love, of which he even wrote poems. Our speech was more of love than the books which lay open before us. Our kisses far outnumbered our reasoned words. Our hands saw less the books than each other's bosoms. Pretty hot stuff for medieval times. Coming up will be an intersection on your left. Cross both ways when it's safe, so you end up cat a corner from where you are now, in front of a wine bar called Les Pipeaux with big wooden doors. Make sure it's safe before crossing. Okay, you should be in front of the wine bar. Keep walking straight with the street on your right and a restaurant on your left. So, while Abelard and Eloise were busy falling in love, news of their affair reached the ears of her uncle, who was full of rage at this revelation. He banished Abelard from his home for having inappropriately surpassed his role as his niece's tutor, and he forbade Eloise from seeing Abelard. But it wasn't long before she wrote to her lover to reveal that she was carrying his child. At this, Abelard acted fast. He stole her away from her uncle's home and took her to his sister's home, where she would eventually give birth to their son, Astrolabe. Look for the address number 34 on this street, coming up on your left. There, I'll reveal the most dramatic part of this tale. You're looking for a beautiful archway with the huge sculpted wooden doors. Stop when you get there. Okay, are you with me in front of number 34? Good. Do you see an interphone on the left? Press the big gold button under the number. The door will automatically open. Don't worry, it's fine to go in. Past the ornate door is what we'll call our secret garden. Okay, are you with me? Look immediately to your right. You should see mailboxes. We are now inside a residential area, but it was once upon a time the Collège des 33, which translates to the College of the 33. This is displayed on the two old papers in the center of the mailboxes. It was set up right here in 1633 by a charitable priest named Claude Bernard. It took its name from the 33 scholarships aimed to help as many impoverished students looking to study philosophy and theology at the University of Paris, probably inspired by Abelard, who had eventually delved into theology. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Feel free to go further inside and walk around the courtyard as you listen. Abelard and Eloise ended up getting married in secret in the presence of her still disgruntled uncle. You see, at the time, a scandal such as having a child out of wedlock would have tarnished Abelard's dignity as a cleric and as a philosopher. Her uncle, however, still bitter, betrayed them and started telling people about the existence of their love child. I would dare to say that in her uncle's eyes, the child was a bastard. And so Abelard took Eloise to a convent where she would become a nun and escape the public eye. Eloise's uncle, still disgruntled, then plotted the ultimate punishment for Abelard by breaking into his home one night 
and castrating him. Yes, you heard me correctly. Quite a revenge. Abelard suffered more from the pity he received from everyone than from the physical pain of castration. In his misery, he decided to take off, and though he was separated from Eloise, they continued to correspond. He ended up moving to a monastic cloister and redirected his teaching toward theology, which in fact attracted more and more students and stirred up more and more jealousy among his scholar colleagues, especially since competition between schools was growing. Other European universities were being founded. It was the 12th century and there were university startups in Bologna, Italy, Oxford, England, and the University of Paris, or as we know it today, the Sorbonne. Do you remember how I mentioned at the very beginning that this part of the city took on the name of the Latin Quarter because of all the students hanging out here speaking the language of the scholars, Latin? Now, let's get going. Head back to the entrance. On the right by the doors is a grey button with sortie written above it. It means exit. Press the button and the door will open. Are you back outside with me? With your back to the doors, go left and continue walking downhill until you reach the corner. So, Abelard continued to put his brilliant mind to work, this time in the writing of a book on the Holy Trinity. This book was the tool his enemies used to falsely accuse him of heresy. The Pope then excommunicated him and ordered Abelard to burn his very own book. I know, it's preposterous, right? Okay, you should be approaching a crosswalk. Go right across when it's safe. You should see a printing store called Imprimerie Magenta. Head in that direction. Now continue walking straight with the busy street on your left. Eventually, Abelard, fed up with the religious scholars plotting against him, fled the monastery. He stayed with Count Theobald of Champagne, who took care of him out of sympathy. Alas, he was soon discovered by the abbot of his former monastery. As a merciful punishment, he was left to live in exile in the wilderness. It didn't take long before other scholars, hearing of his retreat, started leaving their homes to live in the wilderness too, for this way of living seemed pure. Keep walking straight and when it's safe, take the crosswalk toward the trees. Then take the next crosswalk to your left. You should now cross left towards the beige apartment building. Now continue walking downhill with the street on your left. So. Soon, Abelard's followers sought him out in the wilderness, and together they built his abbey, which he called Le Paraclet, meaning another comforter. Well, for a decade, Abelard and Eloise corresponded via letters, and then one day, Abelard learned Eloise and her fellow nuns were forced to leave their abbey, and so Abelard invited them to seek refuge at his little abbey. Finally, they were reunited as monk and nun. Coming up, you're going to keep walking straight to cross the street, and as soon as you've crossed, turn right to the little island and walk towards a café called Café Saint-Victor. 
turn right on the island and keep walking towards Café Saint-Victor. But Abela's misfortunes continued. He had accepted an invitation to become the head of the monastery in Brittany, but having made many enemies, mostly jealous scholars, there were apparently many attempts on his life. He constantly had to look over his shoulder. Now cross the street up ahead and take the street to the left of Café Victor, walking on the lower side of the street. You should have the steel railing on your right. Keep walking until you get to the corner. Remarkably, through all his hardships, Abelard wasn't deterred from his faith. And it was this period of his life where he chose to write his memoir, Historia Calamitatum, which means a history of my misfortunes. Abelard and Eloise continued to correspond, and today their love letters have been collected in a book. Keep walking straight past the street to your left. Here's the way Eloise confessed her love to Abelard. Heaven, severe as it has been to me, is not so insensible as to permit me to live one moment after you. Life without Abelard were an insupportable punishment and death a most exquisite happiness if by that means I could be united to him. If heaven but hearken to my continual cry, your days will be prolonged and you will bury me. And here's how Abelard would write to Eloise. I had wished to find in philosophy and religion a remedy for my disgrace. I searched out an asylum to secure me from love. I was come to the sad experiment of making vows to harden my heart. But what have I gained by this? Turn left here and continue walking. Here's more from Abelard. If my passion had been put under a restraint, my thoughts yet run free. I promised myself that I would forget you. And yet, cannot think of it without loving you. My love is not at all listened by those reflections I make in order to free myself. Up ahead to your left, you should see some grey gates and a big building with a red shingle roof. That is where we are headed. The Collège des Bernardins. It was built in the 13th century in the heart of the University of Paris. As was the case for Abelard, this college was destined to receive young monks and nuns eagerly pouring in from all over Europe, at a time where the Cistercian Roman Catholic religious order was widely spread, from Hungary to Brittany to Scotland to what now is Spain. It's now a beautifully restored building, but before that, it was abandoned and sold during the French Revolution and transformed in the 19th century to a fire station. It was in a very serious state of decay and workers had to employ very sophisticated and complicated renovation techniques. The project went on for years and went right down to the building's foundations where supports were restored column by column. Continue walking straight. The entrance will be on your left. There's an archway with two large glass doors and stairs in front of the building. Take them down and head right in. The entrance is free. 
you will first pass a security check where you'll be asked to open your bag. If it's closed, find yourself a seat on the steps and listen in. Now you should be inside Le Collège des Bernardins, the College of Bernardins. Scan around and look for a big TV screen. Head toward it. The video on loop displays the unrecognizable state of the vestry we're about to visit and the transformations it's undergone. You'll also see shots of different parts of the building today, which are used as classrooms and even TV spots. Pause me until you've seen enough and press play when you're ready to continue. Now scan around for the little bookstore. Head in that direction and walk along the side of the bookstore so that it's on your left. Continue walking and open the cream-colored door in front of you. You can go right in. Are you inside? Well, you're now in what used to be the vestry you saw in a miserable state in the video. In 2008, this area was cleared and given back its original appearance that no one has seen since the 13th century. We can only imagine that this was the architectural kind of setting in which Abelard and many after him lived and studied, taught and debated. Today, this space is sometimes used to hold art exhibitions. OK, let's exit. With the door of the vestry behind you, turn right. You will see a cream-colored door to your right by the far corner. Open it. You should be in a lobby with a staircase. Keep walking straight and open the wooden door in front of you and please be mindful that this is a chapel. Feel free to have a seat and I'll tell you how this love story ends. Alas, after even further trials and tribulations in the colleges he taught at, Abelard's health slowly deteriorated. He passed away on the 21st of April in year 1142 and was buried at his little abbey church, Le Paraclet. Eloise passed away on the 16th of May in year 1164 and was also buried at Le Paraclet, although they were not buried together. Now I hope you understand why I wrote my play based on this story. I find that Abelard's approach to life, pushing educational boundaries, keeping an open mind and accepting controversy, well, I think we can all stand to be more like him. Now let's leave the chapel. Stand up and exit quietly. Now, once outside, and with your back to the door, pass the lobby with the staircase on your right this time. Exit through the door 
and head towards the entrance from which you came. It should be further ahead to your left. We've all heard of eternal love, right? Well, true to that, the love story between Eloise and Abelard continued even after death. Remember, I said the two lovers were not buried together. Well, the Empress Josephine Bonaparte, wife of Napoleon, was deeply moved by their tragic yet beautiful story. So, 600 years after their death, she ordered that they be reunited and move their tombs to the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. You can visit their tombstones at the cemetery. You know, when I began writing my play on Eloise and Abelard, the first thing I did was visit their grave. The day I visited it, there was a group of young people visiting it as well, a group of Germans visiting Paris. They had brought buckets of roses to place on the grave of Eloise and Abelard. And I thought, hold on, this story is universal and even has appealed to a modern generation. I was impressed. Okay, we have one more destination on this tour. Exit the college and meet me outside. Are you back outside with me? Great. Take the stairs, then turn left and continue walking straight. We're going to our last stop by the river. Truth be told, I portrayed Eloise as a learned woman, though still quite submissive. Perhaps loyal would be a better use of word. The thing is, in spirit she devoted her life to this man, even though their physical love lasted a very short time. Truth be told, I portrayed Eloise as a learned woman, though still quite submissive. Perhaps loyal would be a better use of word. The thing is, in spirit she devoted her life to this man, even though their physical love lasted a very short time. When I analyzed their story, I think she was faithful to him, because Abelard may have been retired to his abbey, but she continued to write to him. Of course, no one knows if she remained faithful. Many people passed by these abbeys in those days, but I like to imagine she did, as he was her first love. So, I always said to myself that at the end of the play, Given how docile I portrayed Eloise, women were going to stand up and assassinate me on the stage. You should be approaching a crosswalk. Cross straight when it's safe, toward the antique store on the corner, and I'll meet you on the other side. Head a bit to your right, then go left to continue walking down the street. We're heading towards the river bank. Luckily, I never had feminist movements coming at me. On the contrary, that summer the play ran twice at the Avignon Festival. And one day, a lady came up to me. She had come all the way from the Netherlands. She said, I've been looking for my Abela for a long time and I finally found him. Cross the street and continue walking straight. Soon you'll get a glimpse of the Notre Dame Cathedral. Don't worry, you can't miss it. The cathedral is located on Ile de la Cité, the island of la Cité. It's supposedly where Eloise and Abelard first met. And actually, in a bit, I'll tell you how to find a charming reminder of the lover's presence on the island. For now, continue walking. Coming up will be an intersection. 
keep walking straight and cross when you've made sure it's safe. You'll need to be patient. This is a busy crosswalk with many cars, but they'll eventually come to a pause. You should be heading towards some trees on the other side. Go left when you get to the trees and keep walking. Okay, you should be on the other side. Go left and keep walking until you see an opening to your right. We're going to our last stop by the river. Go down the ramp, the one towards your left, if you're facing the river. Take it all the way down. So, where was I? Oh, yeah. So, the lady called me her Abelard, and it was nice. Naturally, as an actor, I was flattered. As an author, even more so. I had a very pleasant impact with this play. From time to time, I had people who were a bit more particular on the theological aspect and didn't appreciate that I focused on the love story more than anything else. Looking back though, I think Abela wasn't just a great philosopher and theologist. I think the love story played a big part of his life. In my interpretation, love is an eternal feeling. A feeling that's often born in an unpredictable way. So I imagined Eloise and Abelard came together in this manner. He'd been called to teach a charming young lady, at least I imagine she was. Okay, at the end of the ramp, look for stone steps further ahead to the right, use them to get closer to the river Seine towards the edge. As you approach the river's edge and look up to your right, far ahead where there's a bridge, you'll see a protruding figure on the bridge. It's the statue of Saint Geneviève. Check your phone for a close-up photo. It was put there as a symbol of protecting the city. Now look left and you'll see the back of Notre Dame Cathedral. It's the Gothic-looking church. Okay, so now you can either find yourself a spot on the dock or have a seat on the cement benches behind you while I finish up my final thoughts. So, the bonds which were formed between them in the beginning were probably intellectual. I like to think their love was a passionate one, and I imagine that Eloise was very much enthralled with this man, initially on a very carnal level, naturally. Then over time, it became more intellectual and matured into a beautiful love story that lasted a lifetime. After all, they're buried together, so let's call it an eternal love. I especially loved reading Abela's work like the writings of a madman. He also traveled a lot for his time. He covered some miles. I even had a little fun calculating the distance. I'll also point out that I think Eloise was a very modern person. When I focused on the substance of the letters, at the bottom of the letters I found a clairvoyant person who felt that the world was going to change. Writing a play about Eloise and Abelard consumed a lot of emotion, made a lot of memories, and it dwells inside me still. I hope that now you can keep a part of their story alive in you and that you enjoyed walking through medieval Paris and experiencing it through the eyes of Peter Abelard. So, even though our walk has come to an end, if you're up for a little treasure hunt, listen carefully. Do you see that bridge to your left? Well, take the stone steps behind you to reach that bridge Cross the bridge and keep walking along that path, past Notre Dame Cathedral. Cross the street with a bridge on your right. Once you've crossed, 
Keep walking along the Seine with the apartment buildings across the street to your left and look for the number 9 and 11. There, between numbers 9 and 11, you'll see a plaque mentioning what is believed to have been Eloise and Abelard's home. To the right of the plaque, left of number 11, you'll find two door ornaments. There are mini sculptures representing Eloise and Abela. There's a picture on your phone so you know what to look for. Good luck, good sir, fair lady.